Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture for today is Matthew 6, 16 through 24. It's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by God who is in secret, and your God who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's play a game called, Is This in the Bible? I'm going to read an adage about money, and you are going to decide if this phrase is in the Bible. So thumbs up if you think so, thumbs down if you think not. Okay? First one. Money cannot buy happiness. All right, if you answered no, you are correct. Way to go. Number two, the root of evil is the love of money. All right, if you answered yes, you are right. That is from 1 Timothy. Number three, a fool and his money are soon parted. No. While this sentiment is certainly expressed in Proverbs, this actual phrasing is not part of the Bible. All right, next one. Money is the answer for everything. Y'all, that's in Ecclesiastes. It is in the Bible. Number five, all that glitters is not gold. No, that's my man Shakespeare. All right, last one. Whoever loves money never has enough. 
were mixed. It is in the Bible. Ecclesiastes strikes again. All right, end of game. Tally up your points. Collect your prize at the end. It's a pat on the back. Okay, so think about let's, what, what did we learn from this game? At the very least, we should definitely do a sermon series or Bible study on Ecclesiastes. And perhaps we also learned that the Bible has a lot more to say about money than perhaps we thought. For the past five weeks, we've been hunkering down in the Sermon on the Mount. We've packed a picnic basket, applied sunscreen, laid out a blanket, and have been listening to the listening on the side of the mountain as Jesus spins a web of divine imagination. Last week, we walked through the Lord's Prayer, given to us by Jesus, the one we said just moments ago. And we say it together in unison each week as a way to shape our hearts to want what God wants, to see the world how God sees it, to love our neighbor and recognize our connection to each other the way that God created it. And we say this prayer together, not just for ourselves, but also for one another. We're both reminding each other of this life God offers and reminding each other that we're committed to that life too. I will forgive you, we're saying. Will you forgive me? Let us forgive others and ask for forgiveness. I will keep asking for bread and not hoarding it away from you. I will keep thinking about God's reign coming too, if you will. Our Father, your Father, my Father, his Father, her Father, their Father, our great parent who gathers us at the family table together. I remember I remember. Do you remember? This reminding is what's going on between the lines, in the pauses, in our breaths as we recite it together. And then Jesus moves on in his sermon from a prayer that changes us every day to how exactly this world is going to come about. And this next section and today's sermon is about money, sort of, but also it's not about money at all. Stick around for a while. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. These little vignettes Jesus moves through seem disconnected. They're like little poems he wrote and is now reading in succession. Fasting, treasures in heaven, eyes and lamps, God and mammon. They sound like a disjointed list of mediocre ideas for book titles. But might they fit into the logos, the logic of God, of the gospel? Let's think about it together. Jesus begins by discussing fasting. Now, at that time, there were some collective practices of fasting in Judaism, but for the most part, this practice was for things like repentance, prayer, and atonement. And while we understand the word hypocrite to be a pejorative term today, meant to call out the duplicitous nature in someone, that's not what it means here. Hypocrite was just the word for actor. It was a neutral term. 
So when Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites when they over-dramatize what it looks like to be fasting, faces gaunt, dumbled over, languishing, he's talking about not putting on a show. If you're going to fast, fast. But do it for the right reasons. The reasons Jesus understood from his Jewish upbringing. Repentance, prayer, and atonement. And if we're going to do any spiritual discipline or pious act, let's not do it performatively for the sake of being seen, but rather because we know it to be right and life-changing. Once at an airport for an early flight, J.D. and I were contemplating getting a bottle of water before we boarded, wondering if that would make us need to use the airplane bathroom and whether or not we would want to bother with that. And I turned to him and said, isn't it amazing that we are controlled by biological impulses? And he shook his head and sighed, Ashley, it's not even 8 a.m. yet. But I mean, if fasting teaches us anything, It's how dependent we are on quieting the hunger inside us, on filling our bladders over and over again, day in and day out. The fragility of our bodies come into full view in the practice of fasting. And let me take just a moment to say one thing about fasting. It is but one of many spiritual disciplines available to us. Many religions use it as a practice, including the three great Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. But it is by no means necessary for drawing your heart to God and should not be attempted by those who do not have adequate access to food and clean water or those who have a history of disordered eating. Okay. Jesus moves on to this talk of treasures on earth and treasures in heaven, which feels straightforward. Material goods don't last forever, like Dan said, so perhaps focus on things that will outlast them. Turn your heart to the things of God, for that is where our treasure is. Invest in that kind of life, the kind that can't be destroyed by something as trivial as moths and rust. And then we move on to this mysterious saying, the eye is the lamp of the body. The ancients believed almost the reverse of what we know to be true about what happens with our eyes and light. We know that in our eyes are receptors for light, so that light comes into our eyes. However, the ancients believed that light emerges outward from within us. We project light out into the world, hence the connection lamp-eyes. So that whatever is inside us is projected into how we see the world. And this may not be scientifically accurate, but they kind of have a point, I think. And according to Jesus, an unhealthy eye then would transmit not light, but darkness. The evil eye, which is an image from Jewish literature Jesus would be drawing on, meant to have an outlook on life that was envious and stingy, So this truism, the eye is the lamp of the body, 
and how it functions in this text means that just as the world a person without sight encounters is darkened by an eye malfunction, so the life of one with an unhealthy eye is darkened by a failure to deal generously with others. And then Jesus ends this section with a line we have probably heard many times. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon. Sounds like a Marvel movie villain. But mammon was neither a villain nor a god. Mammon is just the word for property. It's another neutral word that signified a thing of value. But the capitalization of it is noteworthy. It has the same effect as if we capitalized the almighty dollar. It becomes personified. It's not that property or owning property in general was wrong, but rather what happens when it becomes like a person, a life, a framework, a kingdom, a king. And Jesus gets at this a little when he talks about why we can't love both. He says, we'll hate one and we'll love the other. And this language of love and hate is not about feelings, but would have been understood to be about choice. By saying yes to one, we must necessarily say no to the other. That is just how being immortal works. Every time we say yes to something, we have to say no to something else. We are all stuck in a linear time model, and unless we find a parallel universe that we can live in simultaneously with this one, this is a crucial aspect of being human. We have to choose. And each of these vignettes seem to be dealing with the human condition, our dependence on heeding biological impulses, how we and what we treasure have a time limit, how the way we look at the world comes from the inside, and how we are finite creatures. And if we are looking for mere observations about our condition, we could stop there. We could nod our head in recognition and commit to making the most of the moment and treasuring those we love. But the gospel, the God spell, the good news, what God is spelling out for us, must put us in a predicament if it is to be news. It must necessitate a response from a sense of urgency. It does not always or even often soothe. Good news can be God loves us, but sometimes it feels like bad news when that means God loves that person or this person too. Good news can be God's reign is coming right this very second. But it can feel like bad news if it means the displacement of the reign we are familiar with, the reign where we have found a way to live and perhaps even thrive. I don't think today is a good news feels like bad news for some people kind of day. But I do think that these little pockets of contemplation Jesus offers are not for mere contemplation, but actually put us in a predicament. 
I'm not so sure about this treasures in heaven thing. I don't think it means we are just transporting our mansion here to a mansion over the hilltop with streets of gold. I'm not convinced that heaven is as straightforward as walking through a door marked pearly gates. No one has ever come back from the dead to tell us. But I do know about treasures on earth. Maybe in ways that even Jesus didn't know. I mean, when Jesus, in his local carpenter experience, spoke about not storing for ourselves things that might wear and tear and be damaged by moths and rust, he could not have imagined mass production on the scale we see today. He could not have predicted how global commerce would explode into modern-day proportions, especially considering he only covered a couple dozen miles in his entire life. And sure, Jesus was right. Material goods do not last forever. But these days, they do last a very long time. Plastic outlives us all. That little toy, my daughter, gets in a Happy Meal, will survive her five times over. Material goods don't last forever, but they do create monuments in landfills and they litter the oceans and fill the bellies of aquatic life, and they run through the hands of severely underpaid workers in horrible conditions. Because you see, material goods don't last forever, but they promise us that we will. But the truth is we are finite creatures with a time limit living in a world that promises infinite goods and services. If something breaks, within seconds, we can have it en route to our house, dropped in a brown box by a blue van in our garage, and the van says Amazon. We never have to see another human to make that happen. We can walk into a grocery store with shelves of different kinds of cereal and dozens of brands of shoes. Now, of course, this promise of immortality flickered a little bit this past year. When we arrived at the grocery store to find toilet paper shelves empty, when we wondered when clean water would run out of our faucets again in February, these were aberrations in the narrative of unlimited production, the narrative that is sold to us, and they were unsettling because they reminded us that limitless when it pertains to anything but God, is a lie. Maybe it's not that Jesus is saying we shouldn't love things because they don't last forever, but because we don't. And it's not that we should resist mindless consumption and accumulation of goods because that stuff is worthless anyway. But perhaps Jesus is saying we should resist it because our earth, the lives of our neighbors, and how those two impact our souls are worth so very much. They are immeasurably valuable.
What if the moth and rust destruction Jesus was talking about is not so much about these goods eventually disintegrating, but rather that the way the system of insatiable and competitive consumerism disintegrates our souls? What if he's talking about how trusting in the promise of immortality by way of consumption frays our connection to the earth? What if he's warning that leaning on the everlasting arms of more fractures our relationships with one another? If the eye is the lamp of the body, perhaps this is the darkness of an unhealthy eye the obscuring of the truest thing that we can know about ourselves, our finiteness, our mortality, the fact that we come to an end. Life is good and finite, my favorite pastor used to say. And it is so good in part because it is finite. And I wonder what it would be like if we looked at the world not with shrewdness, but with generosity. Not because we'll live forever, but precisely because we won't. At least not in the way that we live and move and have our being now. What if this is the work of treasures in heaven? Now hear me when I say... I am not trying to talk about heaven or what happens after we die. I'm trying to say that anyone who promises forever, other than the most holy one, is selling us something. And we are not for sale. We do not parcel our souls and our neighbors and the earth out for cheap promises of forever and infinity. No smoothie, no medication, no gadget, no deal, no investment will keep us from death. We wipe our foreheads with ash each year acknowledging that fact. So how do we live in light of that reality? By trying to get what's ours until the very end? Nope, Jesus says. We entrust ourselves to the daily bread, the forgiveness of others, and the elusive reign of God that whispers to us in the quiet moments. If we try to serve mammon, or the almighty dollar, or self-interested economics, or our consumerist inclinations, or unfettered corporate greed, or second yacht money wealth, or whatever word you want to call it, we will have to say no to God. Jesus, with his own eye lamp, is not making this choice up, but rather shining a light on this reality. We have to choose. This is our predicament, one we find ourselves in each day. And not only as individuals, but as an institution, as a people. And given that we are controlled by biological processes, yet living in the hope of the coming reign of God, a reign we have just prayed for and are the vehicles for its realization on earth as it is in heaven, how now will we live? 
how will we tell the truth about ourselves, about this world? What light do we have inside to shine forth into the world? And how has this light been cultivated in our practices with one another, with our community, with the poor and disenfranchised, with our dealings in business and relationships? How does our life together in worship and in service and in fellowship shape our love for the world God wants? How does it recalibrate what has been shifted in the world of capital M mammon? This is why fasting was and remains a spiritual practice because it calls attention to the true thing. We are ever so dependent on our bodies and on one another. And fasting is a representation of interrupting the narrative we live in as fish swim in water. The point is not the practice, but rather the point is what the practice does to us. It turns the light on inside us. It add, adds oil to the lamp. It fans the flame. And perhaps our treasures in heaven, the very good news for the people of God, is these treasures are us. What we are investing in is the treasure of God, God's own people. And we are not for sale. We will not be peddled lies about forever because our hearts reside in God, the creator and sustainer of forever. And we have chosen God and we keep choosing God. And we choose God by choosing our neighbor, by choosing creation who is also our neighbor and the world our bodies live in. And by choosing the world, God still loves over and over and over again. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.